I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and lamps. I have read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, Hi, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, so if you've been following along with this podcast, you know what we're doing. We're looking at the uh, documents of the American Civil War put together by the Library of America in four volumes. Um, so uh, let's just jump right into it because this first document I uh, really quite uh, enjoyed reading for, you know, because kind of what it says about leadership, I guess. That's what I sort of liked. It's it's Henry Halleck to U.S. Grant. And Henry Halleck was, well, he was at the Army headquarters uh, in, in Washington. And, of course, Grant's near Vicksburg. The siege is still going on there. And the issue is dealing with U.S. Grant essentially trying to put an end to, uh, to the so-called contraband camps and and. And basically, he, he thought, it was, like, he's down in Mississippi, and there's a lot of runaway slaves wanting to join the army or help or, or just flee to the safety of, of the army. And he thinks it's basically logistically too complicated, so he wants to put an end to it. And then Halleck writes him this letter, and it's, it's not like an official order. It's, it's actually a, like a personal letter he writes to him. But um, what he says here is just, um, this is the decision that's made. This is what we're going to do, and we are... The new policy since emancipation is to mobilize these men and women as much as possible, especially the men, put them in, you know, in uniform. And that's what we're doing. And you can't that you can't alter that. Right. This policy is going to go ahead. And I guess it. You know, it's. It's direct. And, I, and sometimes when we 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 experience this kind of leadership, we're. We're of course taken aback, maybe that it's it's kind of trampling on our, our our freedom as as underlings. But at the same time, it's it's when leaders know the right thing to do and what needs to be done, uh, and sometimes they don't do it. That's sort of how I, I guess I'm thinking about this at my own workplace, where there's knowledge of what needs to change and what needs to be done, and no one wants to do it. Um, so leadership will be very very strong on on bullshit stuff like. You know when you sign in and when you when you are allowed to sign out and and divvying up leave and, and those that, that stuff's usually that's not not negotiable but when it comes to like fundamental issues of the workplace and what needs to be done you know i'm a, I'm a teacher so what's the best way to do assessment what's the best way to create curriculum they don't want to step on anyone's feet and they don't push ahead so it's like it's like a strong authoritarian leadership on the one hand but but also weak when getting stuff done and what I liked about this is Halleck's just directness and assertiveness. And he said, this is what the policy is. Um, and he even says, like, you may have prejudice. People under you may have prejudice towards black people. And you're just going to have to, it, you know, that can't be considered. This is, the, this is the policy. And he also says, like, any compromise on the issue of slavery is meaningless and shouldn't be pursued because... The South itself is not, there's no capacity for reconciliation. There's no way to end this war now, but brutal conquest. 
quote, the North must conquer the slave oligarchy or become slaves themselves. And this is the phase the rebellion's in, and you have to do this. And he writes it as a personal letter, but it's very direct. And what's nice about this is, of course, U.S. Grant takes this to heart and immediately changes his policy. So this type of leadership, in this case, worked quite well. Well, um, the next document is Frederick Law Olmsted writing to um, John Olmsted, who's his um, who's his father, and so Frederick Law Olmsted is is working. I think in the logistics of the army in some capacity, but he's touring the camps around Vicksburg. And of course, this was a very long, prolonged siege, a very very long campaign going on for months and months, setbacks and advances for the Union throughout it. Uh, we've been talking about this siege for a while. I think even way back in the last volume when it first began. And this is just a really interesting look at at the logistical, um, technical aspects of, of the army at the time and how well it was doing. And, and I think this is, you know, something that Grant did quite well, maybe better than some of the, the leaders in Virginia at the time. And that was just making sure his troops were supplied and well-trained and, and healthy, all these things. And, 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 and this is what really impressed Olmsted in his tour. But I guess the highlight of this document is a little story he, he tells. He heard it. So this is like a secondhand telling of this story. And the context of this is the, you know, the type of men who run away slaves, uh, former slaves at this point, of course, because of the Emancipation Proclamation, who escaped to the Union line and their talents and, and you know, how much in many ways the Union would just benefit in many, many small ways from having these men and women in the camp and having them, you know, present a threat, you know, to the Confederacy from behind the lines. Uh, and sometimes it's little ways, but it adds up. Uh, so in this story, you know, Olmsted starts out by saying like there were these quote very, very valuable Negroes who are quite clever, taken away from the plantation and but are quite enterprising. These are the language he used, quite enterprising and quite uh, capable. Um, he does says he sometimes have strong attachment to um, to their localities and families, but not their owners. So this was an advantage of them. Right. And maybe we think about them being used as spies sometimes or as reconnaissance. Um, but here, the story is is just that he went back to the plantation he ran away from. This one man he's talking about. He goes back to um, his plantation and essentially steals his master's rifle. And the master like sees him do it. And the, this his former slave of this man says, "You know, I'm taking this 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 rifle." And he says, that, like the master's like, "Well." Well, no, I think, that, no, then the, the officer, he brings the gun to this army officer, Union Army officer, and he's like, who sent you out there? And he's like, oh, I did it myself, you know, um, to get my wife and child to, and to help them escape. And while I was doing it, I, I stole this gun. And the point of this story is simply the advantage that having uh, these slaves as an active, like, constant, like, logistical annoyance to the confederacy whether it's providing reconnaissance or even these little things right every little bit matters in a war and so the idea here being you can totally we, if we could mobilize this force it would really devastate the confederacy and of course that is what happened to a certain degree 
So I rather enjoyed this this document. Um, next, we have uh, Frederick Douglass encouraging uh, black men to enlist in the army. So it's it's a polemical piece published in the Douglas Monthly in April 1863. So at this point, this is a few months after Emancipation Proclamation, and we're seeing the beginning of the mobilization of black units. We've talked about the 54th Massachusetts in the previous episode, and I think we'll say more about it in, in this episode. There might be some other documents about it. Uh, but Frederick Douglass um, here is just making this plea to to black men to mobilize. He actually cites the 54th Massachusetts as a pioneering unit in there. And what is his arguments? Well, he makes several here. Um, one is simply he kind of appeals to their masculinity, saying you and their humanity at the same time, right? Saying you're, you're a man. Both, you know, kind of, I think the language here is slightly gendered. It's not man as a, as a universal human being term used here but you know maybe because he just says you're not animals you you're not property anymore you have responsibilities now as free men and some of that responsibility is this service to end this institution of bondage and he actually here cites uh robert burns the poet from scotland saying a man's a man for all that and he says like it's more important that black men rise up for this occasion because we there's this assumption among whites and white society that these aren't you're, these aren't fully men and they're not fully capable of the duties and rights of citizenship. So he says, um, if you are a sound mind and body, there's nothing in your color to excuse you from enlisting the service of the Republic against its enemies. If color should not be a criterion of rights, neither should be a standard of duty. So saying it's like if if the government is moving towards equal rights, it also implies equal duties to serve. Um, so he kind of goes from this general plea to manhood then into to a plea as uh, these men as American citizens. Um, uh, next, then he does he he ple makes an argument based on um, that this is the best way to end slavery, right? So it's not just about duty as a man as an American. Then it's a duty. He kind of makes a revenge argument almost, saying um, this is the best way to end. Uh, and slavery. Next, he argues, learning the skills of the military will empower our communities after the war, which of course is very prescient because I think Douglas knew full acceptance by white society of free blacks would not be easy, especially in the South, and that would require self-defense strategies, right? The day may come, he writes, when men shall learn war no more, when justice shall be so deeply apprehended and universally practiced, and humanity shall be so profoundly loved and respected that warm bloodshed shall be confined only to beasts of prey. End quote. But he says that's not today, and after this war, we are going to be subject to violence, and that's going to be required defense. And this really foreshadows the violence of the Reconstruction era, where you had vigilante violence um, by whites against blacks, the Ku Klux Klan, the with the white league and that being responded to by institutions like the union league which was largely uh, african-american militias in the south um what else he makes some, some a few other arguments here uh about prejudice uh, about overcoming prejudice um oh and he, then he says like okay there's still a chance that 
there, if this war drags on, that some compromise with the South will be affected. This is, of course, Halleck says the door's closed on that, but Douglas is, is making a case, trying to get black men to mobilize in the army. And so he says there's a chance that there could be some compromise with slavery that would that would undo the Emancipation Proclamation. He says it'd be less likely to do that if there are hundreds of thousands of you in arms and in the military. It'd be, in fact, impossible to do that. Um, and then finally, he makes the claim, whatever has been said about this being a war for union, that's not true. It's a war for emancipation, and you should rise up for this historical moment. So it's a, it's a pretty convincing case. Um, of course, this would have been something that would have been repeated in public meetings. It would have been something in recruitment campaigns that would have been said by Douglas himself, or similar arguments would have been made by other people. Of course, many of these men they were targeting couldn't have read this. So it was an argument that was meant to be repeated orally to others, and it, and it certainly was. So um, so some good stuff here. All, all these three documents we looked at so far really speak to the issue of, of, of how black people can be mobilized and used by the union. All right, so next, uh, this is a different topic, but it also deals with the, the difficulties of the Confederacy to maintain a war effort when so many people at home were enemies of the Confederacy, I guess. And we've talked a lot about uh, enslaved men and women, of course, but there's also uh, other threats. Uh, there's, of course, some Unionists. How many there were, of course, is a matter of debate. But also people who perhaps were supportive of the war effort in the Confederacy, but when push came to shove, realized this war was causing more problems than it was worth, uh, difficulties at home. And a big group here were, were women, of course, who maybe were very supportive of the war effort initially, initially, but when the casualties mounted up, sons and fathers and, and husbands stopped coming home or came home dead. Um, the farms were, they were less able to maintain the farms. Uh, slaves they may have owned were in revolt against them. All these things uh, led to um, them at least changing their mind uh, because it affected them personally. And we see here uh, documents about the Richmond Bread Riot, which, uh, you know, of course was a pretty big affair that just showed how bad things were getting there just wasn't food to be purchased in places like richmond right there the, you know in you know a lot of this was because the confederacy was sticking its guns to cotton production and plantation owners themselves i think that it was more the producers they didn't want to stop making cotton growing cotton because that's where their wealth was, and, and they still believed the export market was there for them. The British might intervene, so they wanted to continue to produce cotton. But um, the reality is they put it in, should have been shifting to, to food production, right, for the, for the war effort. Um, but that wasn't happening. Um, you know, of course, before the Civil War, a lot, I think this, I don't know if the South was importing food. It, it probably was, but you had that kind of sectional economy, right, where you had that North as manufacturing the south producing cotton and the west the prairies the northeast oh, sorry the northwest producing food um and of course that relationship is, is destroyed by the war and the south really wasn't self-sufficient 
um, and that leads to a bread riot, riot. So what we have here is uh, John B. Jones, who I think we met, maybe met before, but he was a he was in the Confederate War Department, and he writes in his diary about the bread riots of early April, eighteen sixty-three. At the head of the, this were women, uh, crowds of women, Marylanders and foreigners was the people he lists as being on the forefront of this, um, and it's happening at a time the president was was giving some kind of public speech. And he told them, this is what the president, of course, Davis, right, says, he told them that such acts would bring famine upon them in the only form which could not be provided against, as it would deter people from bringing food to the city. So he's saying the food riots itself are going to exacerbate the problems. But in fact, there wasn't enough food in Richmond to feed the people. That's why there was riots in the first place. Now, looking to the Northern War effort and public opinion, we have a, now, of course, the, the North was facing its own crises in the in the spring and summer of 1863 with like the draft riots, right? Um, and their own internal divisions over the war. But of course, the Lincoln's re-election, overwhelming election in 64 shows that those weren't perhaps as deep as, as it may have seemed at the time, right? You know, when you look at political conflict and division, you know, you, you get the most vocal voices sometimes, right? So the draft riots, of course, show a, a very violent, aggressive, anti-war faction in, in the North. But it's, a, you know, election kind of proves who has the greater numbers, right? And, and that election proved that, that Lincoln had brought support after the Emancipation Proclamation. But um, we have other evidence here of, of growing support for the war effort in, in some of the public like speeches being given and some of the, the articles being written in newspapers and things. So um, we got like Whitelaw Reed writing to the Cincinnati Gazette, basically saying this is going to be a war to the end. They cannot be subdued. It has to be a defeat. Uh, on the battlefield and it's going to take a long time to fight um he says like the because i think at the time he's partially responding to the fact that people are saying well if there's riots in richmond over food the confederacy will fall in a matter of 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 weeks or something right and he's like no it's not going to be that the lines are hardened and we're in for the long haul but that the fact that that was a politically uh that was a broadly accepted concept it wasn't something he, he had to hide like earlier in the war you still had people talking about a, a quick war but not by this point everyone kind of knows it's it, they're in for it for the long term and if lincoln be reelected with that knowledge that this war would be a long slog uh, and after such radical change of the emancipation proclamation i think suggests that there was a lot of support for the war in the north we see that also in a, a speech given by francis lieber uh in new york um, who actually had a divided uh, family. He had an elder son who served in the Confederate Army, um, two other sons that fought in the Union Army. Um, the, Confeder the son that joined the Confederacy would die. But he gives this speech in April of 1863 um, to uh, the Loyal National League. Of course, he's speaking to big supporters of the war, but the speech itself is is quite good, I think. it's it's It... It talks about the growing division, uh, 
talks about like the north and south is almost two separate uh, philosophies, even two separate people almost. And he draws from a lot of European history uh, to make the case that this is going to be like a fight to the end, a fight to the last man, sort of, or a fight till at least one side is militarily crushed. And he gives examples of, of you know, how bitter enemies, how that turns out in history. He talks about Sparta and Athens. He talks about uh, Austria and Prussia. He actually uses that as an example of, of countries that were friends that later on turned to enemies. And then towards the end of the speech, he makes the argument that this is uh, about slavery, I guess. And he makes the case of, or he kind of makes a historical argument as well about slavery being something that fades away as civilization advances. And so this is something that's standing in the way of America fully becoming a, a modern progressive nation that can um, come out of the war on the right side of history, I suppose. And finally, he also acknowledges the, the growing tension in the North over the issue of conscription. Uh, and of course, that's going to culminate in the draft riots of the summer of, of, of 1863. But he makes a stern defense of the need for conscription to, to win this war. So a pretty uh, broad speech, but it speaks to, it's one of many voices uh, firmly defending the you know, and accepting what the nature of the, of the war had become by 63, right? The more modern voices were, or the, I, guess, I don't want to say the modern voices, but the voices of people who thought the war could be ended quickly uh, or a compromise could be achieved are becoming much more a minority uh, position and even one that's harder and harder to maintain given the realities on the ground. All right, so next we have a pretty interesting letter from, by U.S. Grant to his father, um, which is talking about something I didn't never heard about before, um, and it's about kind of two related aspects, one issues. One is trying to like a formal government plan to get cotton, which of course they're seizing. They're seizing cotton-producing areas, uh, especially in the West, and so there's and then they're seizing physical like harvests of cotton. So there's a plan to kind of get this out and sell it. And, and of course, uh, help fund the war effort with that. And of course, the cotton is needed for northern manufacturing. But at the same time, he suggests here that there are many speculators and uh, and smugglers of sorts who are trying, basically, but the biggest problem he has are with the speculators who are trying to manipulate the cotton market in order to, to make money. And he says, we should just draft those people and... Um, put them to put them to military service which is kind of similar to something like Sherman was saying when he was complaining about the press we talked about that in the last episode and in that uh, he was saying something like well there was some like journalist he was pissed off at for like basically kind of publishing military secrets or something he says he's basically a spy but I'll take him as a soldier right you know there's that that kind of idea that anyone could be a good soldier uh, if you know anyone could be useful on the battlefield of sorts but not in these other roles right these other roles are kind of parasitic or, or undermining the war effort uh, really a sign of kind of the necessity of total war and, and maybe a, a preview of what we're going to see in the 20th century with total war i guess
All right, so um, the next one I want to talk about here is kind of an amazing uh, document, actually. If I can find it. Oh, where is it? Okay. Yeah, it's Kate Stone. So Kate Stone was a Louisiana uh, woman uh, on a plantation. And she writes here in her journal about the what the what the, the Union soldiers were doing to their farm. So it's uh, basically they force her out and she becomes a refugee, ends up going to Monroe, Louisiana, and, and stays there. So she's talking about the destruction of her farm, essentially. And it's, it's, it's another sign that we're really talking about, like a total war here, like the war against the civilians the, the, that was required to, to end the war, right? And she talks a lot about the how the Union mobilized black soldiers uh, uh, to help with this uh, these actions against these plantations. And this document is, is of course, full of like uh, astonishment and terror at the fact that there were these armed blacks in in Louisiana. Um, you know, of course, a lot is given to the 54th Massachusetts because of their their uh, role in in convincing the nation that black soldiers could be fully used as as troops in the field, but they're also being used as as occupiers and uh, you know controlling the civilian population and things like that. And this is an example of that. And what's really striking in this journal is just her her kind of horror at the use of of armed of, of seeing armed black men in the South, which of course speaks to the claims of people like Douglas who are saying this is something that's going to end the, the rebellion. I'll just give you a taste of it here. She writes, the Negroes have been very impertinent, the first armed Negroes they had ever seen. Just as we were seated, someone called out the Yankees were coming again. It was too late to run. All we could do was shut ourselves, our, ourselves up together in one room, hoping they would not come in. George Richards was on the gal gallery. In a minute, we heard the gate open and shut rough hoarse voices a volley of oaths and then a, sh a cry shoot him curse him shoot him get out of the way so i can get him looking out of the window we saw three fiendish looking black negroes standing around george richards two with their guns leveled and almost touching his breast he was deathly pale but did not move we thought he would be killed instantly and i shut my eyes that i might not see it but after a few words from george which we could not hear and another volley of curses they lowered their guns and rushed into the house to look for guns they said but only to rob and terrorize us the negroes were completely armed and there were no white men with them we heard them ranging all through the house cursing and laughing and breaking things open and a little bit later in the journal, she writes, As we passed through our quarters, there were a number of strange Negro men standing about. They had gathered from the neighboring place. They did not say anything, but they looked at us and grinned, and that terrified us more and more. It held such a promise of evil. Jimmy went out at once to where Mr. Hardison was in hiding to tell him his family were with us. Jimmy just escaped being shot by Mr. Hardison, who in the dusk took him for a Yankee. Mr. and Mrs. Hardinson and the small children went off as soon as possible, not thinking it's safe to remain so near home, end quote. So now, of course, this language is very full of, of racist assumptions about these armed black men, seeing them as evil, seeing, describing them as undisciplined, shocked that they weren't being supervised by whites. Of course, the implication being black people need to be supervised by whites. Um, of course, the military service um, proved that wasn't necessary. 
although there were white officers in these African-American units, you know, the question is, was that necessary, right? Um, and later military history would prove not, not, that not to be the case. But in the context of the plantation South where white people saw black people as like by nature subservient, by nature needing white leadership, there was shock there. But the point is, although this is full of uh, prejudicial language towards black people, it also shows the success of this strategy of of using black men as a liberating force because it it really did scare the hell out of these uh these uh white women in the south um and the people who stayed at stayed at home and the result of this was this town essentially being destroyed the slaves being freed and the 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 white planter class being pushed out and turned into refugees so pretty effective strategy Brutal, yeah, but, you know, the, as I've been saying this whole episode, like, the lines were deepening, and more and more people are coming to the conclusion this was going to be, a, need to be a total war. So that's the main things I wanted to talk about in this set of documents. But there's a bunch of documents, though, that I'm kind of not going to say too much about because they all deal with the Battle of Chancellorsville. And, you know, in some ways, that's like Lee's greatest victory in the war. Um, we've seen Hooker being given command. We talked about that in the last episode. And then he had, a, you know, this massive force. Uh, I think he outnumbered the Confederates like two, two to one almost in Virginia. But nevertheless, Lee was able to achieve a victory in, in May of 1863. So there's a bunch of little documents here from different points of view setting up that battle and and the overall campaign and i think we can't uh, underestimate how much this battle itself was was key in in creating like the mythology of robert e lee that that's still with us today to a certain point to a certain degree right he's you know he won battles before that of course the seven days campaign the second bull run fredericksburg these were significant victories as well but they weren't as like unlikely, I suppose, is the Battle of, Battle of Chancellorsville, where the Confederates were outnumbered like two to one. Um, and it, it kind of, in the, in the use of like offensive tactics of a, of a numerically inferior force attacking a superior force and winning and, and, and routing them, uh, that's significant in building up this mythology of Lee, but it also convinces him of the possibilities of this invasion of the North, which led to the Battle of Gettysburg, you know, which was, of course, the turning point in the war and, and Lee's major blunder and defeat. Um, but so this battle kind of the, the documents here talk about the battle from different points of view, soldiers, civilian observers and things like that. But one that's interesting about this is this diary by Catherine Edmondson, who uh, was a North Carolina plantation owner. So many of these women's voices from the South come from plantation women i don't think we've seen any like poor white voices except from maybe confederate soldiers we, ha we haven't seen much of the like anything from the home front from poor southerners yeah maybe because they they didn't write those down all those documents are don't survive for whatever reason but i think there must be letters and things that back and forth with soldiers that may speak to some of this but we just don't have them here to a significant degree but we do have a lot of these um rich white women uh, documents. But this one is 
um, you know, shows how Lee's star is kind of rising as a result of this battle of Chancellorsville. Let me show you a little bit of what he, what she says here. Well, she says things like he's blessed of God. She she also talks about General Jackson quite a lot, who of course dies in this battle. Um, who she sees as like the great hero of the South, the nation's idol. At one point, she calls him here, and at the same in the same document, she's. Uh, talking about Lincoln and Hooker and Burnside and these these union leaders as disrespectful, uh, not gentlemen. Essentially, she, she calls them. They're lacking the principles of, of, of gentlemanliness. Um, so this kind of hero worship, I guess that's what I want to get at. This is a great example of, of the hero worship within the South among, um, among some of the observers. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. So, um, next episode, we're going to start to get into the Battle of Gettysburg, I suppose, and the end of the Vicksburg campaign. So probably, it looks like it's, it's a, quite a lot of military history here. Um, I'm looking at the names. Um, some interesting political stuff. So we've got some stuff from Lincoln here. Um, but, but we'll see where it takes us. I haven't read all these documents yet, but, um, not too many super famous voices here. Um, Arthur James Lyon Fremantle, uh, will be in the next episode. He was like a, he, he was a British man who can't, can't kind of pro-Confederate British person who observed the Confederate army and during the Gettysburg campaign. So, um, yeah, we'll... We'll pick up. So yeah, the next couple episodes will deal really with the Battle of Gettysburg and its and its aftermath, um, and and we'll see what we have to say about it when we uh, when I join you next time. So uh, what you know what to sum up here? Well, I, I think the most interesting thing about this set of documents for me is the growing feeling and acceptance that this was going to be a total war, right? The hints of of a total war unfolding, both in the deepening divides of opinions. Uh, the trauma to civilians, like what we see with the bread riots and the, and the looting of that town, um, the mobilization of whole populations, especially the use of, of former slaves by the, by the Union in various capacities. Um, all of this shows, like, you know, the, how the Civil War was becoming a total war, right? And in many ways, I think it is a good example of the turn towards total war of the, in the 20th century. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what these documents sort of have in common. Um, but yeah, then we, we kind of end on that, that sour note of another major Union defeat. But, um, but things will change in the next few episodes where we'll see the, the real turning point of the war in, in the summer of 63. So I guess that's it for now. I will he see you next time. Thanks for listening. But that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching.